The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the fourth chapter, verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19, in the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now this is the statement, you remember, which our Lord read out of the book of the prophet Isaiah, when on that occasion he attended the service in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth. And you remember how, according to the custom of those days, after he had closed the book and given it back to the minister, he sat down. And then he began to say unto them, This day, this scripture, is fulfilled in your ears. Now I'm calling your attention to this statement, therefore, for this reason. The whole message of the Bible is just a message to tell us that the trouble of the world is essentially due to one thing only, and that is to the tragic refusal of mankind to listen to God. That's the only message in the Bible, really. It's a practical book. It's a book that comes to us exactly where we are. It doesn't postulate anything at all, except that we are failures and sinners and that we're in need. And it comes to us and speaks to us directly. It speaks to us individually. It speaks about the state of the whole world. And its message is to tell us that the world is as it is tonight and we all are as we are because of our refusal to listen to the voice and to the word of God. In that sense, therefore, the Bible has a very simple message. It says that there's only one thing wrong, and that is the one thing. Now, the world, of course, is very different at that point. The world is aware that there's something wrong. But it has many, many explanations. And they differ from men to men and from class to class and from group to group. You read your newspapers and you see exactly what I mean. You see one section saying that all the troubles are due to one section only. But then you take up the opposite paper, the paper that represents the other view, and you find that it says equally confidently that the troubles are due entirely to the people on that first side, and so on. And so men differ in their explanations. It's always this, that, or the other. But no, says the Bible, it isn't. There is only one cause of all our ills. And here it is. It is man's wrong relationship to God. It's out of that that everything else comes. All selfishness and greed. All cruelty and malice and bitterness. Everything that spoils life tonight comes out of this one thing. You can trace them all back to this common source. So that therefore, you see, the Bible says that the uh, answer to all our questions and the one solution to all our problems is to come back and to listen to God, to hearken unto him. Well, now then, the New Testament in particular tells us that God still speaks to us. The Old Testament tells us the same thing. Before Christmas, we spent a number of Sunday nights listening to what God had said in those days, back in the Old Testament dispensation. The astounding thing which we, with which we are confronted is this, that in spite of men in his folly and his ignorance, turning away from God, 
God has gone after him. God has followed him. God has sought him out and has spoken to him. And of course, when you come to the New Testament, you find this in a still clearer manner. It is God still speaking, but speaking in a new way. And last Sunday night we were considering the first announcement of that, as it were. We took that great word, that great voice, that word that came from heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration. There were Peter and James and John, three of the disciples of our Lord. They had gone with him up onto a mountain. And there he was praying, and as he was praying, they saw him transfigured. His face began to shine with a brightness above the brightness of the sun. His very clothes were changed. They began to shine. He was transfigured. And then there came and appeared unto them Moses and Elias, who began to speak to our Lord. And it was a wonderful occasion. But the significant thing was the voice that came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. God now calls upon men and women to listen to this person who was there transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. That is the command. Hear him. Here's my answer, says God. This is what I've got to say. Hear him. Listen to him. It is through him I am now speaking. Well, very well then, the important thing for us therefore is to discover what he has to say. And it is in order that we may discover what he's got to say that I am calling your attention to this incident which is recorded here in this fourth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. The whole occasion, of course, is an extremely interesting and important one. Here is a person who was born in a little place called Bethlehem, in a very remarkable and unusual manner, was then taken and brought up in this little place called Nazareth. And there he'd lived ostensibly as the son of uh, Joseph and Mary, Joseph a carpenter and Mary. And he seemed to be like every other child, and mixed with them and probably played with them as usual, and yet there were strange things about him. He astonished them now and again. There's an incident at the age of 12, you remember, when they'd gone up to Jerusalem and had taken him with them. And they thought that he was with them on the return journey, but found he wasn't. And uh, they went back and found him in the temple, arguing with the doctors of the law and refuting them, and confounding them and confuting them in the discussion. But then we are told nothing about him for another 18 years. And then suddenly at the age of 30, he begins to go out on a ministry. And one of the first things he did, you remember, was uh, to go to John the Baptist, who had been preaching in the wilderness, a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And our Lord went to him and asked him to baptize him, and John remonstrated and said, No, I shouldn't baptize you, you ought to be baptizing me. No, said our Lord, suffer it to be so, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And John baptized him in the Jordan. And as he was there in the water, coming out of the waters of Jordan, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And again that same voice came, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then comes the incident that is recorded in this chapter how he was led by the Spirit up into the wilderness, and there he was tempted forty days and forty nights of the devil. We are given an account of three specific temptations. But our Lord was able to repel the devil so easily. And then, after that, we are told, he came back in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And then he came to Nazareth. And this incident takes place. Now this is important and significant for this reason. Here, in a sense, is the real beginning of our Lord's public ministry. We are to hear him. The voice of God calls upon us, indeed commands us, 
to hear him, to listen to him. And therefore I say we want to know, what has he got to say? Well, now then, here he is at the very outset of his ministry. He walks into the synagogue. He asks for the book to read. They hand him the roll of the book of the prophet Isaiah. He finds this place, this particular chapter. And there he reads out these words that we're looking at. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to grant recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he shuts the book, hands it back to the minister, and sits down. It was their custom then to speak seated. He sat, and they all sat. And they looked at him. We are told that all eyes were trained, as it were, upon him. The eyes of all that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say, and what did he say? Well, here is his message. So that here we have, you see, a very perfect synopsis of his message and his teaching. This is the thing to listen to. What has he got to say? Well, we can divide it up very easily. You notice that the first thing he says is that he draws attention to himself. This is quite vital and we can never omit to emphasize it. He starts by calling attention, directing attention to himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Nazareth, remember, the place where he had been brought up, the place where everybody knew him, the place where everybody referred to him as Joseph's son. It is there that he doesn't hesitate to say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Upon me. Not content with that, he emphasizes the fact that he has been anointed, anointed of the Lord, to preach the gospel to the poor. He's been sent. And then he makes it quite explicitly, remember, in the words that I've already quoted to you, when he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your years. The scripture is that prophecy of Isaiah concerning a great Messiah that was going to come. A Messiah that would deliver the people. You remember the succession of prophets? We considered their message before Christmas. The world was in trouble then as it is now. The children of Israel were in trouble. And they said, what can we do? What hope is there for us? Back came the answer from God through the prophets a Messiah is going to come. A Deliverer is going to be sent. God is going to visit and to redeem his people. And here is this person who had been known so well in Nazareth for all those years. He solemnly avers, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He's making a tremendous claim for himself. And the claim is, I say, that he is the Messiah. I don't stay with that this evening. Because in a sense we dealt with that last Sunday night. This is my beloved son. God attests him. He here now claims it himself. But it's important, I say, that we should listen to that and bear that in mind because the whole value of his message, in a sense, lies in the fact that he is who he is. He sits before them there and he makes this claim that he is God's deliverer. He is the one anointed, sent by God, equipped for his task filled with power by the Holy Spirit to be the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior long promised that the world so needs. 
Very well then, if he is the Savior, what has he got to say? What is his message? What is his teaching? Hear him, says the voice. Very well, like the people in Nazareth, we listen, we wait upon him. What has he got to say to us? And here is the answer. It's all in those words that he's just been reading from Isaiah's prophecy. That's his message. And the first thing we've got to say about the message is this. That it's a message that always comes to men and women as a surprise. Christianity always seems surprising at first, doesn't it? We've all got our ideas about it. The Jews had got their ideas. Their idea of the Messiah when he came was that he'd be a mighty personage, that he'd set himself up as a king, he'd gather a great army together, he'd advance against the Roman conquerors and rout them and set up his kingdom and then proceed to conquer probably most of the countries of the earth. And he would therefore raise up Jerusalem and the Jews to be the supreme nation of the entire world. That was their expectation. That was what they thought he was going to say. He says, I am the Messiah. Very well. What is the Messiah going to do? And those were their ideas. But you notice that what he says is something very different. He says that he has been sent to preach the gospel to the poor. To bind up the brokenhearted. To set captives at liberty, to give sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who have been bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And they didn't understand this. The whole story of the four Gospels is that none of them understood that. You remember that even John the Baptist of all people got a bit confused at last. He'd been in prison for a long time, and he sent two messengers to Christ asking this question, Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another? I don't understand, says John. I believed at first that you were the Messiah, but what are you doing? You're spending your time up there in Galilee in the north, amongst the just a rabble of ordinary common people, and you're speaking to them and doing certain things. Why don't you come down to Jerusalem? Why don't you set yourself up as king? Art thou he that should come? Even John was tainted with it. That's what is expected of him. But his reply, I say, is something entirely different. And this is the tragedy of the world still, that people cannot believe his message because they've got these preconceived notions and ideas. Christianity, they say, religion, what is it? Well, obviously, it's going to be some great philosophy. Or it's going to be some great ethical, moral program. Religion, what is it? Well, it's an appeal, an exhortation. It's something that tells us to live in a certain way. And that if we do so, we'll save ourselves. But it's nothing of the sort. It always comes as a surprise and as a shock. Well, what is this message? Well, the first word he noticed that he uses is the word gospel. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. And what a word that is. That word means good news. He says, no, no, I haven't come to set up an earthly kingdom in the sense that you think. And as, another, as he said on another occasion to a man who had been listening to his sermon, but only listening in a mechanical manner, not listening to the Spirit, because the man more or less interrupts him and says, Master, Speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And our Lord turned to him and said, Men, who has made me or called me to be a divider of goods among men? I'm not sent to do that. He's not some super economist. He's not a political agitator. He's not an earthly king. He's none of these things. No, he has come to preach good news. He's got a gospel. Well, now we start with this because it leads me to ask a question. According to this book, what we all need, I say, above everything else is to hear him. And if we hear him truly, we shall rejoice. 
So the first question we ask ourselves is this. Has this message come to us as good news? Listen to me, says the speaker seated there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me and sent me to preach the gospel. Good news. I am the herald of a good news. I am the bearer of glad tidings. Has this Christian message come to you like that, my friend? Do you regard the message of Christianity tonight as the greatest bit of good news you've ever heard in your life? Now, I start with that question for this reason. That if your idea of Christianity doesn't start with that, according to our Lord, it isn't Christianity. And you see, by saying that I'm excluding a great host of things, am I not? What if you think that Christianity, as I say, is just a, a teaching which tells you what you've got to do in order to satisfy God? Is that good news? Is the preaching of the Ten Commandments good news? Is the Sermon on the Mount in and of itself good news? Is it good news to you that when a man strikes you on your face, you turn the other cheek instead of hitting him back? Is that good news? Is it good news to tell you that if a man sues thee and takes thy coat at the law, that you hand him your cloak also? Is it good news to be told that if a man forces you to go a mile, go with him the second? Is that good news? Is it good news? Is it something that leads you to sing in rejoicing when you're told, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect? Is that good news? You see, all these ideas of Christianity are absolutely false. The test of the message is this. Does it come to me as a thrilling piece of good news? Because if it doesn't, it's not the Christian message. The Son of God himself, the one who claims here to be the Messiah, the one whom God tells me to listen to, tells us that he's the bearer of good news. And when we truly hear him, he leads us to rejoice. Well, what is this? Isn't it obvious I say that to many this isn't good news? Those people there in this Synagogue of Nazareth didn't hear him truly, because you remember that afterwards they tried to throw him and kill him. And they were but typical of the attitude of so many towards him. My dear friends, this is the problem that confronts us at this minute. Here is one speaking the most gracious words the world has ever heard, and speaking and promising good news. And yet, you see, his end was to be crucified, to be rejected, to be hauled away by men, as it were. What's the matter? Why is it that they don't realize that he is the bringer of good news? Why is it that the whole world isn't rejoicing in him tonight, sitting at his feet and saying, that's it, that's the very thing I've been waiting for? What is it? Why is it that he and his message are still being rejected? There's only one answer to the question. It's the thing he proceeds himself to say at once. He is the bearer of good news to the poor. And it is only the poor who realize that his message is good news. Those who realize not that they are poor and who regard themselves as rich, they see no good news in his message. They feel it's insulting. That was the whole trouble with the Pharisees. They were not poor. They said, we be Abraham's seed, Abraham's children, and were never yet in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? They hated him. And the world in its pride laughs at him tonight and talks about sub-stuff and emotionalism and speaks of him and his message with disdain and with sarcasm. Oh, it's all due to this, my friend. He said himself that he'd got good news for paupers and for nobody else. Well, now, this term, therefore, is the all-important term for us this evening. What does he mean by the poor? 
Well, the word that is here used is a very interesting word. It doesn't just mean poverty alone. It means much more than that. The word that is here used carries the element of cringing. Cringing. Or if you like, it's the picture of a man who's crouching as a beggar in his poverty. That's the word that he used. So that we've got to think of it not just as a man who casually is aware of a certain need. It's rather the whole idea, I say, of a beggar. Of a man who's humbled and who's crouching in his utter need and penury. But let me give you some further definitions of what this means. And you realize my reason for doing this? If you are to realize that the Son of God has brought the greatest good news into this world that it's ever heard, there is one absolute condition, and that is that you realize your need of him. You'll never realize the good news until you see yourself and your real need. And that is why he puts it in this word poor and why we must be sure that we know what it means. It's put like this again in the prophecy of Isaiah. God says, to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and that trembleth at my word. That's a definition of poverty. But come, let me give you some of our Lord's own definitions of what he means by this condition of poverty. Do you remember how he starts the Sermon on the Mount? Do you remember the series of Beatitudes? Do you remember the first? It is this. Blessed, he says, are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the same thing. Poverty of spirit. That's the first blessing. That's the first beatitude. He looks out upon mankind and he says, They are the blessed. Happy are they who are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's another way of looking at this poverty. But have you noticed his invitations constantly? Who does he invite to come to him? He says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. His invitation is to the thirsty. His invitation is to the hungry. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. Those are the people he invites. Come unto me only that are weary and heavy laden, or that labor and are heavy laden. Those are the people he calls to him. Here's a definition of poverty. But look at it as it's put still more specifically in some of his parables. And there I think we see it very clearly in the pictures that he draws. Take, for instance, the parable of the prodigal son. There it is surely in all its perfection. That young man, the, the second of these two sons, he asks for his share of the goods and his father gives it him and away he goes from home with his pockets absolutely full of wealth and of affluence. And away he goes, forgets his father, has no interest in him at all, forgot all about him and went into a far country and there had his marvelous good time with his boon companions. It was simply terrific. But we are told later on in the story, you remember, that he began to think of his father and of his home. Well, what made him do that, I wonder? Ah, oh, the answer is very simple. It was just this. He began to be in want. He finds that his money is gone, the food is gone, nobody wants him. And he's sitting in the field with the swine and the husks. And no man gave unto him. He's got nothing. And then he remembers his father. It was poverty that made him think of home. There's one illustration. But then our Lord gives another illustration in another parable. He's got the parable of two debtors. One owed a very great debt. Another owed a small debt. But this is how he puts it. When they both had nothing to pay, 
he frankly forgave them both. That's his way of putting his message, his gospel. Here is a man who owes money and he hasn't got a farthing, nothing at all. That's poverty, that's the poor of whom he's speaking here in this synagogue in Nazareth. It was when they had nothing wherewith to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Or take it perhaps in a still more striking manner. As he puts it in his parable of the publican and the sinner who went up into the temple to pray. And here it is, of course, in the form of a contrast which makes it still clearer. Two men go up into the temple to pray. One of them is a Pharisee. And he goes as far forward as he can. And he stands forward and he says, I thank thee, O God, that I am not as other men are. And not as this publican, the other men. I fast twice in the week, I give the tenth of my goods to the poor. There's another man called a publican. He's just inside the door. He doesn't stand forward. He's there almost on his face and his head. He doesn't even lift up and look towards heaven. He's so ashamed. And all he can mutter through his tears is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And our Lord's comment is this. It's that second man, he says, who goes down to his house justified, not the first. The man who's blessed of God is the second man, not the first man. Well, the first man, in a sense, he doesn't need any blessing. He's complete, isn't he? He's so marvelous, he doesn't ask for a thing. He thanks God. He's so wonderful, he's so perfect. He's self-existent and self-contained. I thank thee that I am what I am. And he gets nothing. He receives nothing at all. The man who receives the blessing is the man who realizes that he's an absolute pauper. Who realizes he's got no claim at all. He can make no plea. He just says, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Now there is our Lord's description of this very term that we're looking at together this evening. In other words, it comes to this. I am sent, he says, to preach the gospel to the poor. Well, who are the poor? Well, we're all poor if we but realized it. And we are poor as the result of sin. The Bible says that, this, that sin makes paupers of us all. What is sin? Well, according to the scriptures, sin is that which robs us and makes us all poor. Sin does to every one of us what happened to that prodigal son in that far country. Shall I explain to you how it makes us poor? Look at it like this. It makes us spiritually poor. It robs us of certain things. What does it rob us of? Well, the first thing that sin robs us of is our character. Man was made in the image of God, perfect, upright, just, righteous. Is he still like that? Are you righteous? Are you holy? Are you clean? Are you chaste? Are you pure? Have you got your character? Would you be perfectly willing that your character should be represented on a screen in the sight of the whole world? And of course your character means not only the things you do, but the things you think. The thoughts you harbor, the imaginations that you fondle, you yourself, in your inner life and being, is that as it should be? No, no, sin robs us of our character. But it not only robs us of our character, it robs us of our power to resist temptation and evil. It robs us, I say, of the power to live and to enjoy life truly. Man was meant for happiness. Man was meant for bliss. John, God placed him there in paradise. But is he in paradise now? No, no, we've been robbed of this. We are robbed of life itself and the enjoyment of life. Come, let me put it very simply and very directly in this form. 
Can you really call your present existence true life? Are you truly happy? Do you feel you're living a really full life? If not, it's because you've been robbed of life. That's how God made man originally. But man is no longer like that. Sin has robbed him. He's been made poor. He has no life. He has no energy in a vital sense. He's even been robbed of hope. And you see, the poor are those who realize that that is the simple truth concerning them. The people who really have faced themselves and have come to discover the utter emptiness of their lives. It's a terrible discovery. The vast majority of people won't face it, of course. Like we are told about the church of the Laodiceans in the third chapter of the book of Revelation. They think they're tremendously rich and they're not aware of their real poverty. So there are millions of people in the world this evening. They say, isn't life wonderful? And what is it when you come to analyze it and to look at it? Can't you see that there's a great sham in this world that people are keeping themselves on the crest of a wave, as it were, in order to avoid facing the reality? So that we are all poor in the first instance in state and in condition. But still more important is our attitude. I'll tell you who are the people who regard this gospel as the greatest thing they've ever heard in their lives. I'll tell you why it is that certain men and women would forsake all the honors that the world can give if they were all given together in order that they might enjoy this. I'll tell you who they are. They are the people who have realized their spiritual poverty. They are the people who realize that they are paupers in the sight of God. And they've come to see that of themselves. Now, let me give you one perfect instance. It's all to be seen in the life of the great apostle Paul. Paul, you see, as a Pharisee, before he met the Lord Jesus Christ, he thought that he was a very wealthy man in a spiritual sense. Pharisee of the Pharisees. Wonderful in his knowledge, living a godly and a religious life, an expert in the law. Oh, how rich he felt he was. He boasted of his righteousness. But do you remember what happened when he met the Lord Jesus Christ? He saw that all that wealth which he thought he had was nothing but what he calls dung and refuse. Utterly valueless. The man who thought that he was so wealthy found his great wealth with one stroke of the pen written right off. No assets whatsoever. And he falls back helplessly on the road to Damascus and says, What wilt thou have me to do, Lord? A complete pauper. Now it's to a man like that that the gospel is really good news. It's to a man like that that the message of Jesus Christ comes as the most thrilling thing he's ever heard of in his life. It's a man who realizes that hitherto he's only been existing and not living that he's been absolutely dependent upon things and upon people, and who realizes that when he's left to himself, he really just has got nothing whatsoever to fall back upon. And there are millions of people like that. If they lose their loved ones, if they lose their health, if they lose their money or their position, they've literally got nothing. I know people like that. We're all like that by nature. We live on things and people and circumstances and conditions. And when they're suddenly taken, we're as helpless and as hopeless and as bereft as was the prodigal son in that field. That's poverty. When we realize that we don't know God, that we've got no reserves whatsoever in our lives, Oh, if only we could all see ourselves as we will be on our deathbeds without Christ. For this will be the position. We will know for certain that we are going out of this life and out of this world. We'll know it. And we'll suddenly realize that we've got nothing at all. 
We are leaving behind everything we've lived for. We look into the future. What do we see? Well, we don't know God. We've never been in contact with him. We've never met Christ. He's not real to us. We've got nothing. It's a blank. And there we are. That's utter poverty. That's what our Lord is speaking about. He has been sent, he tells us, to preach the gospel to the poor. To men who suddenly see that all their wealth is nothing. And that their righteousness is but as filthy rags. They suddenly realize that they're beggars. They are people who say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Who are the poor? Well, the poor are the people who say, I've been a fool, I see it now. I've got nothing. I have no plea to offer. I have nothing at all. My friend, where are you? Do you know God? Have you got life? Have you got vitality? Have you got something when things have gone? And when loved ones may have gone? And when you're left alone? What are you like when you're alone? That's the question. Now our Lord says that he's come to give good news to people like that. And what is the good news? Well, it's the most astounding thing. Listen to some of the definitions that are given of it. The exceeding riches of God's grace. But God who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. What is the message? It's this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Or, but listen to it in these words. What is the message of this Son of God, this Messiah? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, it can be put in these terms. Who, though he was rich, for our sakes became poor, that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. What's it mean? Let me put it in this form. Here he is seated there in the synagogue of Nazareth. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And what am I to say to them? I've got to say this to them. I am the Son of God. I share with God the wealth of glory and of eternity. I and the Father are one. I am the Word that was with the Father in the very beginning, through whom all things have been created. I am the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity. I am eternally rich. But I sit before you as the carpenter of Nazareth. Apparently a poor man. I don't possess a house. He had no place whereon to lay his head. He had nothing at all. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He's absolutely poor. Look at me, he says. What's it mean? It means this. Though I was so rich, for your sakes I have become poor, that you through my poverty might be made rich. He comes to the poor and says, I've come to give you the riches of God, the riches of heaven and of eternity. I do, I'm doing it in this way. It means this. He has taken on him human nature. He has become one of us as it were. And he's lived our life more. He has taken our debts upon him. He owed God nothing. He has never broken God's law. He is not a debtor to God in any sense. But he has come into the world, he says, to take our debts upon him. And our debts have made him poor, who though he was rich for our sakes, became poor. He's taken the load of our debts upon him. And he's become poor, terribly poor. And because of that, he bears the penalty of the law upon this debt. He dies our death on Calvary's hill. But why? Well, in order that through his poverty, 
we might be made rich. And how does he make us rich? Well, listen to it. It's like this. He brings us to God. There is no such thing as spiritual riches apart from God. You can't get it by culture. You can't get it from philosophy. Music won't give it to you. There is only one way to be spiritually wealthy, and that is to be in contact with God. God is the source of all riches. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And to be rich, I must be right with God. Christ has come down from heaven in order to link me to God. And thereby he makes me rich. What are the riches? Well, here they are. The first thing I need is pardon, and I get in him an abundant pardon. What is God? Well, in Christ he's abundant in mercy. I've already quoted John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not, shall not perish. He is forgiven. Come to God, says Christ, in me, and you'll be given an abundant pardon. How can one make this plain or clear? Listen to this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the pardon. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. That's the message. That's the good news. You're troubled about your sin, your past life, the things you've done. You can't get rid of them. The world can't take them away. Here is one who's come down from heaven to earth to carry them away into the sea of God's forgetfulness. He has done it. Abundant pardon. Plenteous in mercy. Our hymns are full of it, are they not? Let the healing streams abound, says Charles Wesley. We've been singing it in our last hymn. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. There it is. He's got it in all its fullness. And in spite of us, here is the message to a pauper who can't get rid of this. The debt is so appalling. Christ has come and has taken it away. He's no longer in the red. That side of the ledger has been cleared. It's been dealt with once and forever. That's the message of this gospel. Because if you don't realize you're a sinner, there's no good news for you. If you just go into the presence of God as the Pharisee went and said, I thank thee, O Lord, that I am such a fine fellow, there's no good news for you. And you won't realize your need of good news probably until you're on your deathbed. But then you will. Then you'll see your righteousness for the filthy rags they are. Then you'll see that your morality is manure. Then you'll see that all your virtues are vile. But if you've already seen what a hopeless failure you are and what a sinner in the sight of God, here is the good news that tells you that he came all the way from heaven to earth in order to delete it and take it away. But not only that, he gives you life. It isn't enough to have the account cleared on one side and the debt cancelled. That still leaves you with nothing. Oh, he'll set you up in business if I may go on with my illustration. Listen to him. This is what he says. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That said to paupers, the people who've got nothing, who've got no life in them. He says, that's why I've come, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly, superabundance. Him that cometh unto me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. To the woman of Samaria, he says, the water that I shall give him shall be in him as a well of water springing up into everlasting life. This message is not merely a message of forgiveness. It's a message of new life, a new birth, a new beginning. My dear friend, I care not how dead you are to spiritual things and how helpless and hopeless. Come to him, listen to him. He says, I've got a message for Papam. And the message is abundant, abounding life. Life which is life indeed. And is it power you need? Are you ashamed of your constant falling to the same sin? And your wretched, miserable failure to keep your vows and your pledges and your resolutions. Listen, he giveth power to the faint and to them that have no 
no mighty increase its strength. So that the Apostle Paul can say without blushing, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. My friend, when Christ brings you to God, he's bringing you to one of whom I can say this. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. That's what's offered you. This is good news, you see. For weaklings, for those who have no strength, for failures, for men who've been defeated by the world and the flesh and the devil. Oh, what a message. It's a gospel. It's good news, but only to the poor. The self-satisfied Pharisee thanks God that he doesn't need it. He's not like this publican, that wretched failure. He's a success. My dear friend, though you and I are living in 1955, can't you see that it's exactly the same? Wouldn't you like to live as Abram lived? Wouldn't you like to be able to look at death and beyond as Abram did? I've told you the secret. Believe what God says about life as it is apart from him. Come out of it. Come out of it. It'll never satisfy you. It'll always lead to misery and unhappiness. And in the end, it'll lead to death and the judgment of God through all eternity. Come out of it. Listen to this call of God to follow Jesus Christ. God forgives your sin and folly. Christ endured the punishment of it and God gives you free pardon. He'll give you this new name, the name of his own son. And he will lead you through life, through death, and even into the eternal city itself and its everlasting bliss and joy. Come out. Follow him. Amen.